Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study in Proverbs. If you've come but don't have a Bible with you, or maybe your phone's out of batteries, you can always grab a paper Bible off to the sides. And uh, though this class is recorded, just narrowly so, so you can escape if you go up to the sides and grab your Bible. You won't be shamed on the internet. So we are in Proverbs chapter 17, and we are in the midst of a section that uh, begins at kind of in the middle of chapter 15. So this is about a wise son or advice to a wise son. And as we get toward the end of chapter 17, we're going to get toward the end of this particular section. So we'll be picking up at 17.1, do just a quick review on that verse, and then we'll be into the new material. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so jumping back in then, pretty much midstream, 17.1, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. We talked about that, but again, I would just have this be a launch point to the realization of how important the familial setting is is how important the dining room table is. And the magic worked there by father and mother, by husband and wife, cannot be overstated. It is of the utmost importance. This is where God's word can be spoken, where life can be interpreted within the frame of God's word and truth and goodness and beauty, where the family can be knit together and united as an eternal family in Christ, where strife does arise as it inevitably does. That strife can be dealt with in a godly way. Forgiveness that flows from the cross can flow into the reality of our homes through the mouths and lips of the family gathered there. So that these blessings of which I've been speaking are so rich and so wonderful that even if you've got just scraps on the table, that is a full feast of the love of God. Better is a dry morsel, you know, a crouton that isn't meant to be one. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than the opposite. And the opposite, it's sad to say, is all around us, of course. All around us in a place like Orange County, people eat whatever they want to eat and feast sumptuously every day. And are they happy in the deepest sense? Do they have joy in the Lord? Do they receive his gifts, the true and lasting things? That's what's missing. So the proverb here draws our attention to this contrast and I think guides us and warns us too because it's so easy as Christians 
to look and see the rich prospering and just assume, oh, they're feasting, their whole life is wonderful and joyful and fantastic. Every once in a while, the veil gets lifted up a little. Uh, What was that? Uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, do you remember that? I mean, from afar, you would think these people, did I get the names right? I don't really care that much about these people, but it serves my analogy that you've got these people that from a distance you would look at them and think, well, they've got it all. And they're flying around from island to island and they're eating whatever they want to eat and they've got no worries, no cares in the world. And yet, look at the reality exposed for us on, I don't know, I think, guess I saw it on the internet. It was probably on TV too. So again, the house full of feasting can be filled with strife and Better is a dry morsel with quiet. That's the quiet, the richness, the peace, the joy of the family um, than a house full of feasting with strife. So just to put some flesh on those bones, that is the thought here at 17.1. Now moving into the new material, verse 2, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. And can I... Can I scrape away a little of the American sensibility here? A slave who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. I think we touched on this last week too, now that as I'm saying this out loud. You can think, for example, biblically of Joseph, who was a slave but ended up ruling over the household. And you can think of sons who have acted shamefully and end up cast off and cast aside, ruling over nothing. Ultimately, Absalom comes to mind. Uh, But there are many examples that could be drawn out there as well. So a slave who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully also then has its full expression in the theology of the New Testament. Now, I know this can can be a confusing point, but God seems to think we can handle it. There is a negative sense or a negative contrast with the master-slave relationship and a positive sense or a positive use of the master-slave relationship in the New Testament. There's both. Where do we see the negative? We see it as we do here in this proverb where a slave is contrasted with a son. Now, in the New Testament theology, this is typically used of how does a slave remain in the household? Well, he's got to work. If a slave's not working in the household anymore, he's not going to be in the household. But a son is a part of the household eternally, and his place in the household isn't contingent upon his work. His place in the household is contingent simply upon his being a son. And so you can see the glorious contrast between being in God's house as a slave, that is, my works keep me here, versus being in God's house as a son, my new birth, my baptism has me here eternally, independent of my performance or lack thereof. You see the difference? So that puts, that puts the master-slave relationship in a negative context. But we see it in the New Testament in a positive context also, where, for example, the, and again, we need to desanitize our English translation Bibles, but where, for example, the apostles refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. 
and refer to Christ in the, in the language of master. And they're pleased to have that master-slave relationship. And many of Jesus, well, at least several of Jesus' parables use this frame, a positive frame, and that is what he says goes. He's our God. He's our master. We are his slaves. Okay, so a positive and a negative use there in the New Testament. Here then, though we be slaves, we will end up ruling. This is wonderful to contemplate in light of the shift that occurs between the Jewish people of the first century and the Gentile people, that as the Jewish people reject, though they are sons, they are ultimately cast out because they do not believe in Christ. While we who are by nature slaves end up ruling and being brought in as sons. So, a lot to consider in this proverb, a lot to play with from just really down-home, rooted, simplistic kinds of things, like look at the power of wisdom such that it can elevate a slave to the state of rulership, or the lack thereof, cast a son down from his high position, all the way up to the spiritual principles of the New Testament that I've been trying to articulate thus far. Okay, on to three. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. This is of great encouragement to us. And it is the exact opposite of how our flesh thinks. So our flesh thinks, well, if you've got something precious, you protect it, and you keep it safe, and you don't use it. But that kind of has an irony to it. Maybe some of you who have had to clean out the house of uh, deceased parents and saw that they kept fine china or something like this that was never used. You think, why did they keep all this very nice dishware? Or why did they keep these very nice Tools, or why did they keep this, this thing perfect and pristine, but they never actually put it to use? And sometimes the realization leads you to go, you know what, I'm going to use those things. <laughs> because my parents never did. So there is a sense in which we recognize that in trying to keep things precious and special, we end up not actually enjoying them. There's a kind of loose parallel here that gold and silver, what does God do with it? Well, the same thing, well, rather maybe, what is done with gold and silver? It is cast into the fire that it might be purified and made even better. Now, what does God do with the human heart? What does God do with us, his saints? He casts us into the fire, as it were, that we might come out purified. So St. Peter will use this language in the New Testament. Do not be surprised of the fiery trial that you must endure. So to God, if it's precious, it's going to be put to use and put to the test that it might become all the more precious. And that a perfect analogy for the refiner with his fire, refining gold and silver. So then we have this promise that the Lord tests or refines the hearts of his saints. 
So the afflictions, the struggles, and this has been a common theme for us in Proverbs, the particular uh, difficulties of your life are being permitted by God, not happenstance, not by chance or accident or fluke, but intentionally because he works all things for the good of those who love him, because he works through the fires to refine silver and gold, to refine the hearts of his saints. Does that make sense? All right, so... Yes, please. I was just gonna. I was just going to invite some commentary or questions. I figured there was some out there. I don't know if I'll be able to articulate my question very well, but I feel like there's a fine line between the fire that God uses to refine and and the circumstances that happen in any given life uh, that that He works that good through versus saying that those things are designed by him. You, you understand where I'm going with this? So you're saying it's not happenstance. Obviously, he knows what's going to happen, and he allows certain things to happen. But I, in my mind, I think it's not the same as him designing particular events to happen. And what do you do when there are particularly evil things that do happen? And if he's designing... You understand where I'm going with that. So in other words, if an evil event happens to said person and that's of God's design, then he's then he is then designed evil in that person's life versus our sinful world is broken and evil is happening, but God is working through that for good. Could you help kind of pull there, that apart a there little? There may be a fine line there, but I think it's less important to fetch that out than it is to really embrace rather the, the different, the alternative and extreme view of that as uncomfortable as it may seem superficially. Because it's ultimately better. And it's the way of uh, many individual scriptures that cite God as the author or creator of evil one who works calamity, one who works evil. Now, of course, we want to swing in on our Augustinian vine and make a careful distinction that God is not the originator of evil in the primary sense. God doesn't say, let me set about designing uh, evil people who are going to do evil. So that would make God, that would be to fall into the era of Manichaeism, this idea that God creates evil. And if there's a God who doesn't create evil, then you ultimately end up with two gods, this kind of theology. It's where it leads ultimately. Okay? So what you want to do is you want rather to acknowledge that all that God makes is good, but God in his very permission of evil agency can be said to be the author, the creator, the bringer of that evil. Now, why is that so important? To paraphrase, because God doesn't play dice. God doesn't leave anything to chance. There's nothing, properly speaking, outside of God. If you leave something outside of God or outside of his control, you're going to end up with more horror than if you leave it within God's control. 
I know it seems the opposite, but that's because we're fallen. If you save that within God's control, you retain God as God. Now, Luther's treatment of this is interesting, and this might resonate more with you, at least kind of tends to resonate with us more on an emotional level, and that is that when you simply don't let God off the hook, he is ultimately responsible for everything. Then the indictments against God in the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the psalms of complaint against God, again inspired by the Holy Spirit, make sense and are in fact they become prayable instead of things that we have to cut out of our hymnal, which we've done, sadly. We embrace a more biblical understanding, and certainly Luther's understanding, that if you allow God to be God and don't let him off the hook, he's responsible for everything that happens. Now you see God in, so this would be Luther's way of looking at God, as indistinguishable from the devil as monstrous and horrifying and God wouldn't have it any other way because we're simply perceiving God as he is and we're not playing mental games we're not juggling around that's why Ecclesiastes is this way Job is this way the complaint psalms are this way the indictments against God recorded in the scriptures are this way it is again by design God refuses to be apprehended as he is in any other way than through Christ. Any other attempt to do so will result in God appearing to be monstrous or else us telling lies to make God palatable. I know it's a subtle point, but it's a profound point. It's one that I ultimately learned from Luther, but where did Luther learn it from? The scriptures. And you go back to those scriptures and you go, yep, exactly right. So that to see God, one does not engage in theodicy, defense of God, nor does one engage in any manner of lying or obfuscating. One simply says, this is how God reveals himself to us in the world, and you contrast that with this is how God reveals himself to us in Christ. So the shorthand for this is the deus absconditus, God hidden, and the deus revelatus, God revealed. God hidden is, is a little bit misleading in the way we think of it, in the way we conceptualize it. It just means that God doesn't appear to be very God when we look at the, his hand in creation. God appears, in fact, to be sort of the opposite of God when we look at his hand in creation. That's by design, because God will not allow himself to be approached via human reason, human philosophy, human investigation. God will allow himself to be understood and approached only through his Son, That's the Deus Revelatus. That's the revealed God or the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. So it's really important to keep those pieces in place because ultimately what they do is two things. And the primary purpose, they drive us to Christ. 
and they drive us away to the away from any approach to God that is apart from His revelation in Christ. I mean, now we're kind of. I understand we're in deep water. We're not playing in the. We're not splashing around in the shore break. We're kind of diving down into the depths of theology. But this is the real reason at its depths why it is absolutely essential to have Christ and him crucified as the foundation and heart of all things. If you lose that, you lose everything. Secondarily, when things befall you, you can say, okay... Pilate spilled the blood of certain Jews while they were worshiping and mingled their blood with the sacrifices. You can say Pilate was a wicked man. The soldiers that did this thing were wicked men. They did it, not God. But you don't let God off the hook. And that's precisely where Christ says when he's presented with these facts, not, oh, good, those men were obviously worse sinners than other men, and they met with their just end. Rather, he questions and overthrows that very assumption and says instead, do you think that they were worse sinners, that these things happened to them? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Jesus brings up an even more difficult example, and he brings this up himself. What about the tower of Siloam that fell and killed, I think it was 18? Now here, you can't simply blame and say, oh, it was Pilate who was wicked. Oh, it was his soldiers who were wicked. Now you have what the insurance companies call, or used to call, an act of God. Fascinating that Jesus is the one who brings this up because that's the deeper lesson. Do you think that this act of God befell these particular people because they were worse than you? By no means. What then? You repent or else you will all likewise perish. Now, that sounds to me, if we take Christ's theology at face value, that when we see the wickedness of others perpetrated against the innocent, quote-unquote, or when we see acts of God, natural disasters, and these kind of phenomena, our response should not be, well, that's, that's unlucky, nor should our response be, well, that was a bad thing that bad man did, but our response should be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We are all under your wrath, and we pass our days under your wrath. How long, O Lord, until you spare us? How long, O Lord, until you make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us? And of course, the promise of God in Christ Jesus is, in effect, soon. In him, now but not yet fully, not yet realized. Okay, that's a very lengthy answer, but I thought that that would be preferable to saying, yes, there's a distinction that can be made there, so we need to see this both ways. 
I think that that's, a, to, for me to answer that way would be itself a bit distortive. Yes, there is a distinction, that's true, but there's more danger in sort of seeing it in this bifocal way than there is in just letting God be God and not letting God off the hook and dealing with the consequences of that, which ultimately drive us to Christ and drive us to repentance and to true godly fear as we walk through this life. And I, I'm afraid to ask if that makes sense. So I'm just going, <laughs> I don't know what I should say. There you go. <laughs> well, let me just leave it at, I'm going to have to chomp on that one for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, you, I mean, and, you... Uh, maybe I'll have some discussion with you later yeah. to get some additional scriptures to kind of... Um, yeah, I'd be happy to provide Work those. through that. I'd yeah. be happy to provide those. You know, this is hard enough to understand in the abstract, it's even harder to actually believe and live out. So there are two very difficult things here, and I've done the lesser of the two by just trying to articulate it. The more difficult, the more contemplative, meditative, and necessary components are when the afflictions come upon you, can you cling to God? Can you utilize the hammer of his word, so to speak, and the light of his word that enlightens our hearts, the hammer that breaks down our presuppositions, and the light that enlightens our eyes that we see what we never could have seen before, because our presuppositions were the things that were blinding us. Okay, so maybe just to jump back to the proverb, you can see where we left off, that God tests hearts, or the Lord tests hearts, and this is likened to the refiner putting silver and gold to the fire. So embedded here in the proverb is the sense that the Lord intentionally refines human hearts. The Lord intentionally afflicts. As you read through the Psalms, you will find this in many places where the the psalmist, and of course we are all praying with the psalmist unto God, says, your hand was heavy upon me. Your arrows have sunk deep into my breast. Your afflictions have come upon me. Okay, so it is not letting God off the hook. It is recognizing God's hand in all things. And where we doubt his goodness, we're making an appeal to him. And then ultimately, I mean, the long form answer of this that literally takes millennia to answer and is the fulfillment of countless scriptures in this vein is the unspeakable and frankly unbelievable glory that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. That's the express language of the New Testament. Now, if I tell you what this really means, you'll be tempted to leave the church. And I've probably had a couple people leave the church over this teaching because, frankly, it's almost too good to bear. It's almost too unbelievably good. What it means to be sons of God is defined only as it is relative to Christ. There's no such thing as sons of God in the abstract. Christ as the Son of God is one thing, and we as the sons of God are another. 
we can make a distinction, and we should make an important distinction, that he is in and of himself divine, and we will never be in and of ourselves divine. He is ontologically part of the Holy Trinity, and we, no matter how glorified we become, will not be. That's an important distinction to keep in mind. But once that distinction is made, it's like, let all the stops off on the organ because it's time to blare long and loud that the sons of God are defined such as relative to the Son of God. We are being conformed into his image and into his glory. The Beni Elohim are godlike figures all throughout the Old Testament. They fall in rebellion to God and the entire New Testament is about how they are going to be replaced by the saints of God as we are conformed into the glory of Christ Jesus. How was Christ loved by the Father? The ultimate act of the Father's love was to scourge and crucify him. This is the exact language, again, the English sanitizes this, but this is the exact language of the scriptures. I think it's specifically in 1 John, I have to look for a reference, where the sanitized English is disciplines, but the Greek is actually scourges. It's the same word used in the Gospels for the scourging of Christ. God scourges his sons. If you are not scourged by God, you are not a son. So to be conformed to the image of Christ is foremost a matter of being conformed into his suffering. And secondarily then to be conformed into his glory. John has the glory and the suffering wed together. Paul has them distinct. Two different facets of the same diamond. Have this mind in you, St. Paul writes. And he goes on to articulate the mind of Christ, who counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, unlike Adam, who counted it as something to be grasped, but allowed allowed himself to be humbled unto the incarnation, humbled to be born of the Virgin Mary, humbled himself to be obedient to the Father, even unto death, which is great because the obedience of Jesus is the essence of the gospel, to be obedient to the Father unto death, and not just any death, but the most cursed death described in the scriptures. Cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. The most humiliating and cursed death he is obedient to the Father unto, and that is this let this mind be in you that you will be obedient unto the absolute humiliation that God puts upon you that you would remain faithful and conduct yourself faithfully in that humiliation now if it stopped there we could maybe make the charge that I don't know God's a sadomasochist or something he just enjoys torture for the sake of torture but the scriptures never stop there They call us to be humbled with him that we might be exalted with him. And the paradox is already seen in Christ Jesus that in the very things that the earth would see as the most humiliating and disgusting, his face being spat on, him being punched, him being lacerated with whips, him being condemned when he's innocent in a kangaroo court in a series of them, him being stripped naked, for the mockery and humiliation, him being scourged in all of these, uh, the depth of his humiliation, 
is set before us as his ultimate glory. So those things that as he was going through, it would make you literally turn your face away. You'd be disgusted. You'd be ashamed on his behalf. You would think, I mean, this is the scandal of the cross. It's why the Jews don't believe in, didn't believe in him and don't believe in him. But already we as Christians see these very humiliations as the essence of his glory. Because we see that he did that out of pure love for his father and for us. That though his father forsook him, he still cried out with perfect faith and perfect love, my God, my God. Though all of humanity, his own brothers, forsook him, he still cried out with perfect love, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The essence of the gospel is the law, and the essence of the law is the gospel at this key point, the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And that becomes the pattern and the template for enduring the sufferings of this life and perceiving even in the shame the present tense glory and the promise of that glory which is to come. That's why St. Paul in Romans 8 talks about the creation groaning and travail like a pregnant woman thrashing about, groaning, grinding her teeth, uh, crying out in agony, and that we're all experiencing that tumult, and we're experiencing that tumult in ourselves. But what's the point? The point is that the sons of God are going to be born. That's us. Do you know what the womb is for us? The tomb. Which tomb? The virgin tomb of Jesus. That's why he's buried into a tomb in which no one has been laid. It is a virgin tomb that he makes into a virgin womb. What does St. Paul say earlier in Romans 6? That through baptism we are united with him in a death like his. Buried with him that we might be raised with him. We all as Christians share one tomb. That is the tomb of Christ. And that tomb he makes unto a womb. He is the firstborn from the dead. Which, if you're the firstborn, you're not the only born. Who else is coming? Countless siblings. So we, conformed into the image of Christ as his true siblings, will be born from the virgin tomb, become the new virgin womb. Our shame will be our glory for all eternity, and we will reign as small g gods, as beni Elohim, as sons of God. That's what it means. Again, very crassly on that point, what's... The son of a duck. A duck. Ducks beget ducks. What's the son of God? Gods. That's why the Psalms refer to us as gods. Why Christ himself refers to us as gods. Small g gods. This is a billion miles away from Mormonism. This is right up against the witness of the Holy Scriptures and the profundity of the gospel that is so good, so mind-blowing, so amazing, that even people who appear to be steadfast, died-in-the-wool Christians will faint and will say, nope, that's too far, that's too good, I can't believe it. Okay, that's it. So, I love this proverb. And I love the theology behind it. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. If you are under discipline of God, rejoice because it means you're his sons. 
in the language of the formula of Concord, uh, Article 11 in election, God before the foundation of the world not only predestined you and elected you for salvation, but he elected and predestined every last trial that you would go through. He handpicked them for you. It's not an accident. It's not by mistake. It's not, oops, God was asleep at the wheel. He did this to design you unto the end that you in your own particular way would be conformed into the image of Christ. Why doesn't God ask our permission for how we want this to happen? Because we would want so much less for ourselves than he wants for us. This is again the angle when you're in heaven or rather even better when you're in the new heavens and the new earth resurrected in your sinless body you will in all likelihood give thanks to God more for the afflictions than for what you counted to be blessings because it was through the afflictions that he was giving you more than you ever wanted for yourself or you can be an evildoer So, Proverbs 17, verse 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous mischievous tongue. All right, an obvious observation, one we should be conscious of, because just because the people of the world are filling themselves with the lies of the world and the speech of wicked lips, maybe the song lyrics of wicked lips, we should be careful lest we be led astray. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. They're all of the same ilk. Five, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. All right, I think the first half is simple enough to understand. It's very straightforward. To mock at the poor is an insult to the one who has made that individual person. And of course, he who is glad at calamity, he who rejoices in the suffering of others, that would be maybe a better better way to translate it for our ears. He who rejoices in the suffering of others will not go unpunished. This idea of like, ooh, they're getting theirs. Mmm, careful. Careful. Don't you have yours to get? So that's the idea of will not go unpunished. Okay, so two ideas to be aware of evil, the evil of wicked lips, wicked tongue, wicked hearts, evildoers, liars, to separate oneself from that. We are people of the truth. Christ is the truth. And as Christ has compassion on the poor rather than to mock at the poor, so also us, lest we insult our maker. And then he who is glad at the suffering of others will not go unpunished. That's not who we are in Christ Jesus. We're not glad at the calamity of others. Even when it's justice done, we're not glad at it. We don't glory in it or gloat in it. It's just justice done. Would that they would not have done such a thing that they, had not, that they did not meet such an end. 
All right, beautiful verse six. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Ooh. The world has just cast its, a world here in the West has just cast its crown aside. Yeah, but I can live lonely and isolated and self serving and have a lot of money. Gosh. Just even now, I'm not a grandparent, but, and, I, <laughs> and I don't have a ton of kids. But the, the most precious things in the world, the most precious moments in the world are when, my, are when my kids jump on my lap and guess what happens to my phone? There's no room for it anymore. And grandparents taste that in such a sweet way because it's not only their own fruit and their children, but it's the fruit of their children. It's their children's children. And when they've got little ones squirming all over them and making a noise and running around, there is nothing more. Pre- there is no more precious blessing in life. It's just an earthly blessing. We can't get too bound up to where to where we idolatry, you know, make an idol of it. Um, that's true. But as far as earthly blessings go, there's just nothing better. It's just nothing better than children. And it's true too. I know we get annoyed corporately in the church service, and you can't hear the pastor or something, and. Um, or you know you can't, or the pastor messes up because there's loud shrieking all of a sudden. Um, so what? What joy to have little kids in the back! What joy to have little kids clamoring around and hearing the word of God! And the last thing on earth we'd want to do is send them off to some children's church so we adults can. You know those churches that <laughs> do that, the big ones, they tend to get rid of the old people. How do they do that? by blasting such high decibels that they can't stand it. And then they'd get rid of the young people just by saying, hey, so then you've just got, you got no old, you got no young, you got everybody in the prime of your life, so you walk in there, it looks like everybody's in the prime of their life. It's not the body of Christ. It's not accurate. It's, it's kind of lie. So you got the whole body of Christ there, aged, middle-aged, young, little children, all of the above. It's a beautiful thing. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. They're, they're the jewel the true wonder of this life. And then this beautiful asymmetrical symmetry, the next stanza, it's just kind of beautiful to think of it linguistically, beautiful to think about it in terms of kind of a linguistic algebra, a dance. Children are the crown of the age of the glory of children, so shifting generation is their father's shifting perspective, whereas the grandchildren are the crown of the aged, now it's the children, or now it's the father who is the glory of the children. So the glory of children, that is, what do children glorify, is their fathers. You know, and that's, that's true. So, I, I, you know, you're talking about a Christian home, you're talking about people enlightened by God's word, that the delight of children is in their parents, the delight of their children is in their father, because who do they see in their father? They see a fair and moral and loving and merciful. They see an image. This is, yeah, is this idealized? Sure, but it's the Proverbs. It's what's set before us. They see an image of the Heavenly Father and their earthly father. That's it. They see his foibles and his flaws too, but they overlook that. That's what honoring your father and your mother is about. You see an image of the Heavenly Father insofar as you see it in your earthly father. So that's the glory of children. Just beautiful interwoven reality okay so more glorification of the domestic reality have kids have lots of kids have grandkids rejoice in families rejoice in all that comes along with families all the messiness and inconvenience and not enough money and all of those things in life don't even matter 
They just don't. When you're, when you're sitting in your nursing home at, you know, for the last however many years you have, nobody looks back in their life and goes, gosh, I wish I was busier. I wish I made some more money so I could have some more stuff. Nobody reflects on life that way. Even at the end of this life, you look back at the relationships, the people, the meaningful events. Um, and then maybe a word here too, like, so God hasn't blessed you with a family yet? Okay, your family is the church. That's your real family anyway. It's a family that can't be destroyed by death. So lean into your church family. You've got tons of, remember the disciples? Like, I think it's Peter who's the spokesman. What should we receive since we have left everything behind and followed you? Jesus doesn't say, how dare you for being so self-righteous. <laughs> he says, rather, you're going to have houses everywhere. You're going to have mothers and fathers and families everywhere. What's he mean by that? In this life, he says, and in that life which is to come. Everywhere there's a church, there's a family in Christ. And everywhere there's a church, there's a place where you can have mothers and fathers and children and a family. All right, let me pause there. Let me see if you have any thoughts or comments. Got just a little, little bit of time left. Why does the world hate families? Why does the world hate kids? Satan hates families. Satan hates kids. That's the easy answer. I mean, these things aren't... It's just not rocket... It's not spiritual rocket science. Once you kind of realize, like, what God values and loves, you're going to see how the world's the exact opposite of that. You don't need to scratch your head. It's because you have the sons of light... The sons of obedience, the sons of darkness, the sons of disobedience. You've got those two families. You've got two different fathers. You've got the father of lights. We're sons of light. You've got the father of lies. You've got the deceived and deceiving. Okay. Chapter 17, verse 7. Fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. Let me try to help out a little bit, and I am just kind of basing my paraphrase here on Steinman's commentary. So this is more the sense, like, many words are not fitting for a fool to speak. A fool should keep his foolishness to himself. (laughs) So it's not fitting for many words to be spoken by a fool. Still less is it fitting for a ruler to speak lies. That's false speech, lies. So think of how wrong it is for a fool to just blather all the time. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody's going to profit from that. That's better still than a ruler who speaks lies. Hmm. It's a little bit of an indictment, isn't it? When's the last time any of our politicians have spoken truth? I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're sure. They probably don't even know. The idea that politics has, been, has become synonymous with lying, I mean, literally synonymous with lying, should be a great tell. Should be a great tell. Because the role of a ruler, that's why we pray, the catechism teaches us to pray for godly and pious rulers. You think we mean that they have the Muslim God? Or serve mammon as their God? that they're pious in their consumerism. That's not what we're talking about. 
When the Catechism teaches us to pray for godly and pious rulers, we're praying for Christian rulers who will rule as Christians. We're praying for rulers who will speak the truth. The capital T, truth of Christ, but then all the small t truths, if you will, I'm making an informal distinction here, but all the small t truths of reality. So this is what we're praying for. And indeed, as the Catechism teaches, every time we pray, give us this day our daily bread. That is what we're praying for. We're praying for godly rulers. So a godly ruler is one who tells the truth. And insofar as a ruler tells the truth, they're at least following the natural law, the order of creation. And there is then a way to judge by way of God's word. Again, then properly speaking, it's not us doing the judging. It's God's word that has done the judging. Where princes lie, that is completely unbecoming of their office, and perhaps that individual is unfit for the office. All right, fine speech is not becoming a fool, or many words are not fitting for a fool to speak. Still less is false speech to a prince or lies that come from our ruler's lips. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Yeah, so you give this thing and suddenly your will is done, right? It's the magic stone. It's here, take this thing and, oh, look, lo and behold, you're doing exactly what I wanted you to do. So a bribe, and of course bribery is uh, sinful and explicitly so in the scriptures. But a bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Yeah, if you bribe the right people, grease the skids, oil the wheels, get to go where you want to go. And that all makes a certain amount of earthly sense. But it makes no sense because God is watching. (laughs) All right, so bribes are given to corrupt, obviously, and not to, uh, not to be straightforward with the truth, but to corrupt someone, to change someone's mind illicitly. That's all on display here. Nine, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Here, is, here it is important to make a distinction. There are certain sins that it is required to uncover them and morally required to uncover them. I mean, if you're aware of the abuse of someone who cannot defend themselves, you should uncover that sin and bring it um, along with the evidence to one who has jurisdiction to make judgment and execute justice. Um, you can read more about that if you like in the large catechism on the Eighth Commandment. But if it isn't one of those kinds of sins... Require, require uncovering for the protection of the weak. If it's just some kind of like personal sin or sin that um, really is none of our business to begin with or other such things, then whoever covers an offense speaks love. That is to overlook it, to ignore it, to explain it in the kindest way, to not make a big deal of it if it isn't a big deal. Contrasted with whoever repeats the matter, that's the idea of gossiping, but, it, but even maybe before it meets that threshold, it's just the idea of repeating or reporting things that shouldn't be repeated or reported. He who repeats a matter separates close friends. So I think you could shorthand this and just say forgiveness seeks love and unity between people. Covering over, explaining away, ignoring to what extent you can the weaknesses of others around you all works toward loving harmony among them, 
Whereas by contrast, if you repeat a matter, if you spell out and specify, well, do you know what so-and-so did? Well, do you know what such-and-such did? All you're doing is sowing contention, the opposite of love. You can even separate people who already do love each other. So we can file this, if we like, under that category. There's quite a few proverbs there. Recognize the power of your lips. Recognize the power of your speech to unite in love or to separate those who deeply love each other. And obviously, to choose wisely and choose in a godly way. We know who our Lord Jesus is and the way in which he covers over our sins in love, daily and richly forgiving our sins in the Christian church. And how he is not one to repeat a matter, and especially in such a way that close friends are separated. So really kind of an idea of here the Eighth Commandment, I think. Okay, one more. Oh, this is great. This is, again, one that just drills down to the essence of the Proverbs. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. (laughs) So here at at the heart of Proverbs is realizing that we, as, as we encounter God's wisdom, because we're by nature sinful and unclean, by nature our reason and all our senses are turned toward the devil, of course God has sent his Holy Spirit and give us, given us a new man within, a new heart, a new creature. We're no way going to deny that reality. Um, even still, on account of the flesh that dwells within us, so much of God's wisdom strikes us as confusing or we don't understand or maybe we don't agree with it or believe it. The rebuke of his word goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And then from that, it, of course, flows down into our interpersonal relationships. But I think maybe to take it in a different way, if you would be a man of understanding, then listen to the rebukes of those who, what they say is true. And let that penetrate you more than if somebody was there with a club beating it into your head or trying to. So a fool, though you give him a hundred blows to try to treat him, he, you know, to try to get him to understand, he won't understand. But a man of understanding will receive a rebuke from someone's lips. So it's great because rebukes often sting our egos, which is fantastic. It's like the best. When your, when your ego really stings and you start making defenses and excuses, that's like where there's smoke, there's fire. You should really stop and be introspective. Instead of just being like, well, that person hurt my feelings, or that was an uncomfortable truth, or I don't think she's right, you know, that kind of thing. Um, When the ego stings, like, stop and be like, now why? And it may be that they didn't say in a polite way, or the tone was wrong, or the timing was get get rid of all the chaff. What's the wheat? Why did it sting? Because there's some element of truth. And if you want to be a person of understanding, as the scriptures would have you be, you want to take that to heart. And people who rebuke you, again, in the spirit of Proverbs, are the people who love you. The people who don't actually love you are the people who just pat you on the head, pat you on the back, everything's great, whatever you think is perfect, uh, you know, I, I support you no matter what. That's not love. That's people who want you to love them. It's very different. It's an egotistical exercise in itself, isn't it? 
To truly love someone is to be willing to speak an uncomfortable truth to them. And if you receive that, if you know the, the courage and the bravery and the love that takes that person to rebuke you, if you receive that, you're receiving their love and you're growing in that love. So that's the invitation, ultimately one that, of course, we receive from our Heavenly Father. Because as you, the more you stick around the scriptures, the more you're going to get rebuked. <laughs> the more you're going to realize, oh, that thing that I thought was right and held dear to my heart was, in fact, wrong. God have mercy, and may God further enlighten me. And may that be the prayer of us all. The Lord be with you.